Hi guys, thanks for listening, thanks for downloading, thanks for streaming or however you have chosen to consume. Coming up next, the podcast with Alistair Marks, which is me, the guy that you're listening to. Uh, I am very grateful for your for your listenership and uh, if you're not already, you should probably be subscribed to the show, you know, just to make sure that you do get each and every episode every week. Uh, it comes out on a Tuesday Melbourne time which, uh, if you're in most of the rest of the world, is in the future. And if you're in New Zealand, it's in the past. Um, My guest this week, Frank Murray. Uh, If you go all the way back to episode number 69, um, you will be able to hear my first interview with Frank uh, over Skype. Uh, This one we did face-to-face towards the end of the last interview we uh, we got into his uh hit the project that he was about to start working on which he's now wrapped which is uh, Paul Schrader's new film First Reformed uh we also touched a little bit on the new tech that he had been uh, working on on Ang Lee's last film um and we also spoke about you know the usual sort of success and uh, relationship topics we're going to get into a lot of that sort of stuff again, um, but this is mostly just about his time working with the Hollywood legend that is Paul Schrader and what it was like to be a part of a film like that as a producer, um, as well as you know his thoughts on the industry at large. But I probably don't need to tell you what we spoke about because we're about to speak about it, and here is coming up next episode number 124 and my welcoming back to the ramble room to the chat cave of frank murray there's a hair in my guinness that's what they. That's that's their thing here. That's the thing here. <laughs> yeah, that's their specialty. Right. We can go somewhere else if you want. No, it's, I mean we've already ordered the the guineas, as it were. Is that what a multiple for the Guinness hairy Guinness for the hairy Guinness? Yeah. It's the same price. They don't charge extra for the hair in your Guinness. <laughs> so we we talked about doing a uh, podcast in a pub for for a little while. It's your first pubcast. It's this is. Well, it's my first pubcast, but while um, while Damo and I were in Ireland, we did do a whiskey podcast where we progressively drank our way through a little uh, Jamison Oh, that's sampler. fun. It was fun. And how did that turn out? Did you cut that one together yet? Yeah, I didn't really cut anything out. <laughs> it's just we just progressively get more drunk. Great. And more intimate. And we worked through his uh, creative constipation. I think, oh, really? I think that was episode 120. Yeah. Poor Demo. Poor Demo. Well, no. For the world to hear. I mean, yeah, poor everyone had to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> More than anything. <clears throat> so, um, here we are at the uh, New Rose on Essex Road in North London. That's right. And the yeah. last time we talked, I was in uh, New York City still. I hadn't yeah. made the uh, 
the jump over the uh, proverbial pond. Not, there's no proverb, actually. No, it's actually a pond. Yeah. Well, it's it's a large pond. Yeah. But anyway, here we are. You just uh, you just finished working on um, uh, Ang Lee's Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. That's right. Um, and that probably seems like a distant memory now. Well, it is, and you know what's weird is I kind of. I remember talking about how excited I was about that film's release and the technology and all that stuff. Yeah. And then it sort of came and went. As it turns out, I guess uh, the studio had a hard time finding a way to get it to exhibitors mm. um, for them to show it in the format it was intended to be seen in. And then um, it got buried, Just really you know, unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, not not many people saw it. I think at the end of the day, it just you know didn't really hit the mark um, on a number of levels. Where the where the tech worked, um, it worked, and I think it worked well enough for Ang to want to continue in that vein with his with his new project. And my understanding is that he's working with uh, Mr. Bruckheimer right now on a Will Smith project yeah right um with the same high frame rate 3d crazy tech okay but uh i am uh, i'm not involved this time around right i've uh, taken some steps um was it hard to separate yourself because i'm sure given the excitement around the technology and that you were potentially going to be part of the team pioneering this technology was it hard, I guess, from a kind of ego point of view to separate yourself and go, well, I'm, maybe I won't actually now be a part of the, I guess, riding the crest of that wave because you won't be on that other film? Oh, no. You mean to see, kind of hopefully see it succeed? And Yeah. You know, no. I, I like the experimenting process. I mean, it's not, not... You can't hit everything out of the park. It's just not the way it works. Yeah. Um, but I feel I'm very proud of the achievement. I mean, it was really hard, and it, I can always say I was part of the first go around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when it was you know, the, that very <laughs> expensive camera <laughs> test. Um, no, I don't. There's no. No, I wish everybody involved the very best, and I I hope I get to see it, mm. and I hope it works, and I hope it becomes a you know a new format that's accepted and used and. You know, Ang's the best. I just, he deserves to succeed. So hopefully they, you know, they pull it off. Well, what makes him the best? Just as a human being. He's stubborn in all the best possible ways. <laughs> and, um, you know, he suffers his craft. You know, for a big name director, he's sort of very, um, he's, you know, the same as every artist we know. Yeah, they're struggling and stuff. He just happens to be remunerated much more handsomely than the rest of us. But he, um, I just, I just like that he's stubborn and he's, you know, his focus is he's unshake, you know, unshakable. I saw, so, a, I saw an interesting idea that that kind of likened filmmaking to a sickness. Like, oh, know, it's a sickness. Yeah, but it's the best kind of sickness, I think. Mm. You know. Yeah, I think you, you, you really need to... The, the the further into it I get, the more I realize how much you really do just need to be so obsessive and uh, single-minded and, and focused on what it is that you want to create and what you want to say as well. Yeah, well, you're, you're in this... You're in the documentary jam as well. And, 
you know, we were just talking earlier about your current project that took six and a half years to put together what still going you have and it's still going whereas you know that's that's dedication mm. when you actually don't actually you don't have necessarily a concise end game there's no sort of blueprint narrative you just have to hope that you know it, the story unfurls in a way that makes it you know narratively cohesive enough to cut together and something that's going to be compelling to an audience and I um I find it amazing the devotion that documentary filmmakers have especially for things that are stories that are ongoing you know if you're doing something that's sort of you know a retelling of um, of events mm. that, that already came to you know to their own natural conclusion yeah then it's it's a little bit easier but you're in this sort of on this journey now and I find it amazing and hopefully uh, hopefully I can be part of that I want to help you out with it so there you go yeah got it on record <laughs> Shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I have no real sense of objectivity. I just kind of know and understand that there was a story there that I found compelling f- right from the get-go. And, yeah, I guess the further we went, the more I was sort of convinced that that would be the case, that it would be something, uh, that there was a story not only worth telling, but important to tell. Yeah. Well, clearly. And without going into the details, um, you know, your audience will learn about it soon enough, I'm sure. Uh, they would, they've been hearing about it. Oh, really? As a thread, probably throughout the whole fucking podcast. Oh, of course. I should know that because I, I, I also listen to your podcast religiously. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, they probably don't know. I mean, there's the, there hasn't really been, a, I suppose, an explanation of the 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 thought process of what the final outcome will be for the Love Your Sister documentary, but Love Your Sister has been a f- consistent thread, right? As a concept, anyway. Are you getting any bleed from this jazz flute? In oh the yeah, background? I can, we can hear it all. Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I am wondering what the kind of uh, legal ramifications may be, but there are know, none. No, I mean, there's no profit being made from no this podcast. So no, I doubt they made any profit from this record anyway <laughs> a jazz time version of uh, uh, what is it um, House of the Rising Sun is that what it is yeah I think so it's Aqualung's cover it sounds like it right um, so there you go so I don't know should we should we pick up where we left off last year well I am, I am interested work? well you're only the second person I've had on twice oh and the first person was a musician who had a new pro, like a new band that they wanted to talk about. So we we spoke a little bit about the new band, and then we ended up speaking about uh, what it's like working in the age of streaming services. So <laughs> maybe it would be better to start with the sort of things that you've been doing since uh, Billy Lynn. Um, so I I, pro- I think I mentioned to you that at the time I was in early early prep or late development on. Um, on Paul Schrader's new film that's not out yet, mm. uh, but with with which we did the festival circuit this year, um, called First Reformed. So we fit, I wrapped that um, last year, last winter. What was the production process like for that? Because I know that you know this is this was like your one of your kind of first jobs where you were really 
working autonomously as a producer, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, um, I had finished. I'd finished a film called Wonderstruck, uh, which was a sizable budget film. As a co-producer, mainly as uh, the de facto production manager on on the film, so I was a physical producer on that, uh, and it was killer. And Christine Vachon and I had talked a little bit about... Kill is the name of the production company. Yeah, Killer yeah. Films, Christine Vachon's company. And, sh- and um, we had talked a little bit about what, where my aspirations lay in the, for the future and stuff like that. And I mentioned wanting to move to the UK. Um, and that the only thing that would sort of hold me back from moving right after we wrapped Wonderstruck would be another project that I could produce. And I, I talked about a couple of things I had in development as well um, to see if you know they, they would bite and she wasn't really keen on any of the things that I had going on but she mentioned uh, that she had a script she wanted me to read and she said I want to give you this movie and you could just kind of handle it soup to nuts I'll just hand you, hand you the script and the director and you just go and uh, take a whack at it and it turned out to be Paul Schrader's new project so naturally, I said, "All right, I'm going to go work with Schrader. That's yeah. cool." And I know he'd had a you know a tricky run with his past few movies. He's, you know, he's such a he's a little bit of a maverick, and he kind of works outside the system. And he makes a point of making that his calling card. Now he just kind of probably a little bit disenfranchised with his history with Hollywood, and so he had tried a few things. And um, I think he kind of had the idea to you know take it to Killer because they would be a good fit for. Um, for an indie film of of that type, where he had you know he he retains creative control completely in Final Cut, and so I don't know that they necessarily knew exactly what to do with it, but she felt it would you know suit me. So Paul and I met, we hit it off immediately, and then kind of started to you know put the final polishes on uh, on what was already a you know stellar screenplay I mean you know it's to be expected guy who wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and yeah so um, Does, and do, we do you find that he kind of almost battles against that because they were you know they're really iconic films but they're films that he wrote as opposed to films that he made right I, I don't know that he necessarily struggles against it one of the interesting um talking points early on with him was that I felt like his body of work was so seldom self-referential he's experimented with so many different different sort of genres and approaches you look you know um, you look at his body of work and though there are sort of some tropes that repeat themselves um, it's very seldom self-referential almost like he's tried to distance himself from his legacy as a um, uh, celebrated screenwriter. And we talked about that. I said, you know, uh, and it's uh, no one that listens to this will have seen First Reformed by the time you, you air this, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of taxi driver in this movie. Uh, there's a lot of Paul's uh, background, mm. uh, especially sort of his, his um, socio-religious upbringing. Um, that you know, in his early films, you could see a lot more of uh, movies like Hardcore and stuff like that. So, um, in a way, this is probably the most self-referential film he's made, where he's also paying 
direct homage to the screenwriters, the, I'm sorry, the filmmakers that he's sort of revered his whole career. Um, and he touched, and there's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of imagery um, and uh, style approaches that are taken directly from his own book on Dreyer, uh, Ozu and Bresson, uh, called Transcendental Style and Film. So it was sort of like taking a trip uh, into sort of Paul, like going to Paul Schrader school, even for Paul. Um, And that was just so much fun, you know. Um, And I think we we, we really succeeded in making sure that he got to make it his way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I like to think that I succeeded in protecting him enough um, to be able to do it in a way where his process was unmolested. Um, the things that needed to shine, you know, were given a chance to shine and that we've stayed really uncompromising, you know, with regards to um, the severity of the subject matter and how dark he wanted to go with it. And to our um, great pleasure, it was received very, very well. Uh, Standing O in Venice. Yeah, well, congratulations. Um, some great press after Telluride as well. And then we sold in Toronto to A24. It's funny, you don't quite realize, or I certainly didn't realize, what an influence and an impact he has had on the kind of greater artistic community. I mean, in the last probably month alone, I was listening to a Mark Maron podcast and he was talking all about Schrader and what a massive fan and influence Schrader has had on his career. And I'm currently listening to um, Bruce Springsteen, the audiobook of his autobiography, which Springsteen narrates, and he talks about getting a script from uh, from Schrader called "Born on the Fourth of July," yeah, which turned into yeah. a very well-known Springsteen song. Yeah, um, so it's 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 pretty mind-blowing how broad a reach his influence has had on these big-time artists. Well, he's also, I mean. He- He's an academic and a scholar in equal measure, you know, um, and very few people speak as eloquently as he does about the medium Mm. and um, his his knowledge of it and of its evolution is kind of second to none. Um, And I think that resonates with people who, you know, kind of tend to gravitate to the more academic um, aspects of of film and just you know they're they're few and far between these days it feels it feels like there's almost not quite the same interest in yeah director commentary on dvds and stuff for a while you know it seemed like everybody not just film students and you wanted to you know see what was going on behind the camera or at least hear hear about it and there's there seems to have been a little bit of a distancing mm. with that. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but I, I I don't find that I'm meeting as many people who are as interested. Um, but with respect to Paul, I mean, he's one of the first people you go to when you need to, you know, buff up on your on your um, you know filmmaking academics. Yeah. Right. And I think what he does, which is, I guess, similar in a way to Springsteen and maybe even Mark Maron, is, you know, he really makes, he kind of explores the psyche of the, almost the working class kind of real 
people that you were that you that you could come across in the street you know yeah well that's paul yeah and um maybe a little bit like me maybe maybe that has maybe that's why we get along so well there's always a little bit of an outsider kind of there's that feeling that we don't quite belong in that world you know it's interesting i mean uh, it's nice to get the accolades and be invited to festivals and do the red carpet thing and put on the penguin suit and <laughs> wave at the at the gal- gallery go on yachts yeah but i got to tell you man it's just it's fucking bizarre and i certainly of course i i want to make films that get accepted to festivals and i want to you know mm. um, critical acclaim is important but i could totally do without this that part of it it's kind of that's sort of yeah and I, I could see that even though we sort of liked being recognized by our peers I, I felt like it was one thing that Paul and I had in common that like we don't really belong on these canal boats on our way to and from <laughs> premieres in Venice it's yeah. just weird and um, you know you get lost in the moment a little bit and you can appreciate it for maybe you know half an hour to an hour at a time and then you kind of realize that that's not really your scene yeah 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 um but um yeah he 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 does have that blue collar i mean look that's the name of his one of his best movies (laughs) happens to be blue collar but he 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 is that and he's very he has a very working class approach to everything um and he's just very human you know so, sorry, go on. No, that's it. Um, well, it's not it. I thought I could <laughs> talk about Paul all day, but... Well, what was it like, I guess, to be inside the bubble of the Paul Schrader film and kind of working with him collaboratively on a project? Well, it was a learning experience for me. Not necessarily from um, from a technical filmmaking standpoint. I think that... Uh, I'm at I'm at the point where I know enough to if he says this is what I want it to look like this is what I want it to do I, I can give him that mm. but it was a learning experience in working with someone who's so efficient and decisive um, and I'm kind of going through this again now where I was kind of mired in the studio system for a little while and so I was working with screenplays that were in many ways you could see they were written by committee <laughs> yeah right um, and um, is that is that sorry to, to cut you off but yeah. is that as a I suppose a, a, is it done in that way as a kind of marketing exercise is that why no well marketing exercise yeah, presumably yes because everybody sort of has an, I guess executives have their opinions about what um, what story points need to be explored because of the moment and what's yeah. expected, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I've, but, but with auteurs, and I'm dealing with it right now, where uh, one of the greatest first drafts of a script I've ever been sent, which is uh, Todd Solon's latest that I'm trying to, uh, that I'm producing right now, again with Killer, um, it's just the best. I mean, the guy is, and, and Paul has that same thing. They're just incredibly, uh, smart screenwriters and and efficient it's the efficiency that's incredible to me there's no stage direction there's no fluff there's nothing and even the dialogue there's no there's not a lot of hot air you're right um, and but it's all there and just like a great novel 
it just comes across between the lines. You just know you, mm. you, it just it just the performances read off the page, and with single lines of stage direction, just to set uh, a frame, it's enough for you to, to say everything. Um, and to me, that's that's probably one of the most eye-opening parts of working with Paul and now with with somebody like Todd as well is um, that I now I just strive for efficiency in what I do you know um, in reacting to the material because the material is so efficient it's so you know and when when we were shooting Paul you know we I was told one number it's always the same story but this was the first time I worked with such a small uh, I'd worked with such a small amount of money uh and I was told one number, and then it turned out to be, you know, less than that. And so our schedule invariably ended up kind of shrinking. And we shot first reformed in 20 days. Oh, wow. Uh, which is... So what, four, it's five, about, eight weeks? Yeah, it's about half the schedule of the next shortest film I'd done in the, la- in the previous, like, seven years. Right. So... Um, it was somewhat terrifying and Paul was just like nah 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 it's fine we'll, we'll get it <laughs> and, I, and I was like alright man you know he's 70 and I was like I hope he's got the stamina to shoot this in the winter in New York and you know make our days to get it in the Canon 20 and he did and he would surprise me every single day with how ahead of the day he would get and this is without compromising at all on the look of the film I mean a lot of granted a lot of that is um, is a testament to um, to our cinematographer, a young guy named Alexander Dynan, who I think is going we're gonna hear about uh, in the future for sure, and also just a great crew that we put together. You know, a very strong art department, and just a great on set crew that was that they knew more about how to make that type of film than I did, uh, and I made a point of not really calling on any favors from kind of the bigger studio project um, department heads that I usually work with because I knew that they'd be in the weeds just like I was during prep with yeah. regards to believing that it was possible to shoot this in 20 days. But I think everybody was marching to Paul's drum and he's really, really good at it. I think he honed his skills you know, over the last couple of years with uh, when he made the canyons and uh, uh, and this, this the film he did prior to first reform dog eat dog I think was on a shoestring and really short schedule as well um, but you know watching him work that efficiently was really eye opening that's the biggest takeaway it's a long answer but well how much of it is down to do you think um, like you said I, I guess surrounding him with you know a great cast uh, you had Ethan Hawke in the film Samantha, uh, Amanda Seyfried as well yeah um, you know top top level actors who probably don't need a lot of direction there's just a lot I guess it's more of a collaborative sort of process and then you know great cinematographer great kind of you know how much planning is done in or how much of the work is done in pre on a job like this uh, do you mean in terms of like rehearsal or that kind of thing? I guess rehearsing and, and storyboarding and kind of knowing exactly what, what needs to be done each day. Well, when it, when it became apparent that I had 20 days, we had 20 days to shoot this, um, we basically locked Alexander, the DP, and Paul in a room with the door closed every day <laughs> for about two weeks, right. four hours a day, shot listing everything to within an inch of itself. Yeah. And um, 
And that was an exercise that was non-negotiable. And I think we, we everybody agreed it had to happen. And we we didn't necessarily totally live and die by it, but we stuck to it. Was that new for Paul, or was that something that he would normally do? Um, I think, I mean, he had shot listed before, but not, I don't, I don't know that he's ne- he had necessarily done it that intensely um, that way. I think, you know, maybe like before, you know, at the beginning of the day, they would block and shot list, you know, and he would, de- I'm sure he dedicated some time to that every day, like most directors, but this was, it was all blueprinted very yeah. early on. Um, with regards to rehearsal, there really wasn't much at all. We did two table reads. And what's interesting was, you know, Paul told me, he's like, you know, I'm not a big, I don't direct performance. It's just not something I do. It's very rare that I'll interject with uh, the idea of somebody to deliver something a different way or whatever. I just hope that I just really place a lot of importance on the casting process and then, you know, my characters will just, whatever small tweaks he makes will be to sort of adapt mm. to who's in the role. And, um, and that was really it. And I think that when Ethan came in on day one, we, we, had a, we had a nine and a half page scene on day one of principal photography. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Shooting <laughs> and, almost 10 pages yeah, on, in one day. Yeah, plus some other stuff as well. Yeah, right. There's one location. And... That was actually strategic. I wanted to make sure we got that out of the way first because it sets a tone and say, this is what you have to expect every day. Yeah. Um, We're biting off a lot more than anyone should be able to chew. And we figured the biggest day should be the first. That way you you strike a note and hopefully that resonates throughout and then the rest of it seems easy. That's the idea anyway. For anyone anyone who's listening who may not, work in the film industry what would you say would be a reasonable amount of pages or dialogue to be shooting in a day on three a, yeah three to three and a half when you're at a good clip and then if it's stuff if it's if it's relatively straightforward coverage or uh you could get off get up to four and change mm. uh, nine and a half for one scene <laughs> is not um, not reasonable. Not reasonable. But, you know, the approach the approach was, you know, this was uh, this was Paul kind of flipping the bird to the idea of the death of slow cinema as well. So there was not a lot of coverage, and we lived in the master a lot. So um, obviously that helped. If we were, if we had to cover that yeah. the way we would, you know, you know, more mo- a more modern approach to uh, to coverage that we would have never gotten it. Yeah, you know? so but um, but with re- respect to rehearsal on that first day, uh, we came in not really rehearsed. Uh, we had two table reads. Uh, Ethan was finishing a, a film he directed in in New Orleans or in Baton Rouge or whatever Shreveport something like that, and he he had like no time really. So he was thrust right into it, thrown right into it. And on day one, there was a little bit of back and forth because Paul wasn't giving Ethan enough to go on. You know, he was just kind of, you know, stand, sit, deliver. You're, you're, so it's more blocking. You're, yeah. You're Toller. This is your character. Go. And I think there was like one moment where Ethan was just like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> and he wanted to sort of find, he, he needed to dig at, dig at Paul a little bit to yeah. get 
just what he needed for the, to light the pilot light. And then that was it. It never came up again. It was day one. Uh, they had, you know, one t- kind of timeout where they took about 15 minutes to have this back and forth. And that was it. Yeah. The, 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 rest, of the rest of the time was very, very clear. Um, and that was another sort of eye-opener for me. It was, like, I was, it was incredible how quickly they just, he just got it. But obviously, I, I kind of, I was kind of with Ethan. I was just like, wow, this is a huge day. You know, day one, this thing you don't... And Paul was just like, he expected him to just, just get it trust. right away. This is your job. And in, in a way, it's sort of like, there's, n- it's the most, it's the biggest compliment you can give an, an actor. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, It'd be the guy scary, who wants yeah. to get it right, you know, and it's, it's hard to tell if it's, if it comes from a place of really not, not knowing where you want to go with it or making sure that you really want to please this legendary director you're working with. I think it's the latter. And I could see that, you know. But, I mean, Ethan is probably one of the easiest, most amazing uh, actors I've had the good fortune of working with. He's, he just gets it. Mm. I mean, at least for this. Uh, you know, and I... F- physically, I knew it was a great fit. Like, I could always kind of visually see it I was really interested to see where he would go with it because he's always had this um, this boyish charm about him this innocence uh, and the, this character goes to a very dark place but he but obviously there, there's the counterbalance of that sort of you know innocent um, quality that you know you would assume a man of God would have to have and he he, he plays both sides so efficiently obviously the the um, what comes naturally to him is just there under the surface. He doesn't play it up at all, and it's it's a completely transformative um, role. And I don't think I don't think I've ever seen anything like that from him. And I think if you look at the reviews, I mean, they speak for themselves. I mean, people were pretty impressed with his yeah. with his performance. And I'm I can't wait for people to see. It. I can't wait for you to see it. Yeah, yeah. No, and very, um, very and tell me what you think. Well, I mean, you've worked with some of the greatest actors going around to you know now and in recent times what what for you makes an actor particularly on set uh you know great what separates the good from the great or the mediocre from the from the great both in terms of work ethic and final performance well, work ethic, just show up on time and show up on set on time and don't and, and loiter in the... Yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, that's just the standard. But the for, for me, it's when I'm always so busy, so I, I can even be at Video Village and I'm staring at the monitor, but I'm, not, I'm never really looking at it because I got my, my laptop open. I'm putting out fires left and right. Usually the sign of a, of a great actor is somebody that forces me to leave set so I can get some work done already mm. because otherwise I'm just fixated on what they're doing and that's what happened on First Reformed um, I would ju- I'd be drawn in a little bit too much and then I, I, I turned into a little bit too much of a fanboy <laughs> sitting with Paul and watching Ethan in this really dark role and finally with subject matter that really speaks to me you know um, I had to just take my leave for 
70% of the day I was just, I just wasn't around yeah. because I couldn't get any work done. <laughs> I was just watching <laughs> I was just watching it unfold. Um, you know, some producers have the luxury of being able to do that. I I I wear too many hats so I can't. But that's I think that's a good way to to put it. That's a good sign yeah. usually. What, what I have two questions to come out of that. The first one is um, what 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 is the premise of First Reformed? Um, basically, Ethan Hawke plays a, um, a parish priest from uh, Calvinist Church, which is a historic church that almost nobody attends. And um, he's having a crisis of faith. He had lost um, his backstory is that he'd lost a son to the Iraq War. He had been a chaplain. Uh, a military chaplain himself before and um, he drinks too much he's got some health problems and one of his parishioners comes to him for help Uh, are you familiar with Ingmar Bergman's um, um, Jesus Christ I'm drawing a blank here Uh, Winter Light no okay so there's a there's sort of a direct Winter Light trope that that is uh, explored here where one of his parishioners comes for help um, without giving it away uh, he fails to give him the help he needs and it turns out that um, this young man was a militant environmentalist and that was his cause right he himself was in a crisis of faith um, and he had a baby on the way with his wife played by Amanda Seyfried um and Toller, feeling like he'd failed him, feeling like his mission uh, as a man of God was not really satisfying what he saw as his life's ambition at this point in his life, decides to take on the environmental activist's cause, recognizing that the people who bankroll his church happen to be have corporate interests in a company that's listed as a major pollutant of the planet. So he struggles with this, and there's a little bit of a promissory revenge quality right. uh, that's kind of pulled straight from Taxi Driver. Yeah, right. So it's his descent <laughs> yeah. into that, you know, sort of uh, that struggle as he's coming to terms with his own mortality, which is... Um, Imminent, according to uh, a gastroenterologist. Right, and um, I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that. It at that that sounds awesome. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Um, I guess the next question was from that. You know, you said that it was subject matter that you could relate to. I mean, I know that you're not a religious person at all, um, and I know that in conversation we've spoken about that. Paul is. And there's that kind of crossroads. I guess what for you was it that was the, I guess maybe the subtext or the. Uh, well, when I say identify, I mean I don't I don't necessarily only mean from a story or narrative perspective. I mean I, also from a style perspective. And it's a mood piece, you know. It's um, uh, it's a slow film that is there to evoke a reaction. Of course, the story is very strong, and, and the, the the subject matter is 
is very close to Paul, but one of the things I told him that I think is one of the film's great, great achievements is that it transcends um, theology. And we, we've seen reviews from um, sort of religiously inclined publications that loved it. And obviously, non-believers love it as well. And it sort of walks that line very efficiently. And that's probably the most incredible thing about, about the film. Or as far as things that spoke to me, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a Paul Schrader film. It's yeah. the most Paul Schrader movie you've ever seen. Because with hindsight, knowing his body of work, once you, when you watch it, you're like, oh, wow. It's, it's, um, it's the Paul Schrader we've kind of, we all want to see. Um, and so that's maybe that's where my affinity because I'm a fanboy I mean I told him I said you know I'm a scholar of your body of work Um, and then when I asked him when I first met with him if I was toying with the idea of taking another project on that would have seen me come to London a little bit quicker I'd ask him a question so why this movie why now and he told me that um, he had been speaking with Marty Scorsese on the set of Silence which is you know Martin Scorsese's kind of religious picture and that they were having a discussion about whether or not it would be and of course I'm paraphrasing I'm talking about two greats and putting words in their <laughs> mouth hopefully I don't fuck this up but he said he said something to the effect that they were having a conversation about whether or not Martin was comfortable with that being his last film you know they're getting older uh, there's friends in their peer group that have passed on um, you know, people are diagnosed with disease and stuff like that. They're at that that age, and uh, Marty says yes. You know, I would be I'd be fine. This is while he was shooting it. Of course, now he's doing the Irishman. I'm, sh- you know, uh, but um, so I think Paul mentioned that he'd come back to New York and he's walking around around by himself in the West Village, kind of contemplating life, and says, "Shit, I better write my, I better write my swan song." Yeah, and. And that's how he laid it on me. And I was just like, yeah, no pressure. I'm like responsible for, you know, Paul Schrader's coda. Yeah. And um, I don't think he saw my hands shaking, but I'm, I know they were. Um, but again, you know, as we kind of got into it, he's, his sense of humor is the greatest. And he's actually very collaborative for a guy who's, who's, so, who's got such a defined sort of uh, storytelling approach and and who's you can you can tell Paul anything you know and he'll either and he'll never tell you to go fuck yourself Mm. but he'll either take your your note into consideration or he won't and he won't take he won't tell you whether he is or not it just either it it either shows up in the script or a a variation of it shows up or it doesn't and it's just the easiest thing and um He's just the greatest to work with, and I, I really hope I get to do it again because mm. I love that guy. You know, he's like my uh, he's like my punk rock dad <laughs> that I you know that I never really had. Yeah. You, know? you mentioned you know we're talking about Ethan Hawke before. You'd be sitting at um, at Video Village putting out fires left, right, and center. What what I guess are some of the um, realities or the challenges that one faces in doing a low-budget film in 20 days? Well, it's really just lack of resources. You know, For on this one, we weren't confronted. It's sort of, you know, you give up one for the other. So a lot of times on, on, on pictures with bigger budgets, 
with bigger budgets comes certain expectations, especially from talent and, and crew. Uh, about what kind of creature comforts they can expect, what type of environment they, they're walking into, what they're willing to put up with and what they won't put up with because they know that there's some serious dollars there and there's people above the line, uh, like, you know, the talent are getting remunerated very handsomely, so they're not going to put... But when you, when you end up with something that's got almost nothing, everybody kind of gets in the same skiff and you know paddles away from the dock next to the yacht the other big movie knowing that like oh we're all in this shitty boat together there's not a lot to go around so we just got we're going to make the best of it anyway so on the one hand that's kind of liberating on the other hand you literally have no resources so the fires you're putting out is really finding ways to get done what you need to get done with next to nothing so that means calling on a lot of favors um, you know whatever goodwill you've accumulated over the years on aggregate with vendors and mm. and crew you you spend it <laughs> you know <laughs> that capital you just start to you know call in those favors and make sure oh Tom Jones um, <laughs> so uh, the soundtrack we're accumulating <laughs> for this one uh, so that's really what it is and but but I quite like it you know and I thought it was a great experience and I really re- what I really liked was um working with younger crew because you get mired in this sort of like the same old timers that are like the best they're the best the best kind of top one or two crews in New York City and uh, they've been doing it forever they know everything but what I what was really inspiring to me is working with this this younger generation of department heads that just kind of blew me away with how talented they were how together they were how calm they were under pressure how um, and that made me feel really good, because you know me, I get down on the, <laughs> you know, I get down on like the new breed of whatever. And yeah. We have these conversations about like the type of content that is sort of streaming, and like what the only types of films that people talk about just like make me want to eat a bullet. Some days I'm just like this is so depressing. But when you you know, these are. It was like a shot in the arm, you know, to to see these uh, this younger crew really step up to the challenge and then some, and like show me different ways to work and say, well, this, if this is possible at this level, can you imagine if I I put them in a role on a much larger film? Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah. Mm. What was it like uh, going to you know something like Khan with? Wonderstruck. With, well, well, you went. You went with um, with Paul to Khan, didn't you? No, 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 no. no. What am I? No, Ken. Ken, I went. I was going by myself anyway because I right. just moved to London because Wonderstruck was playing there. Uh, right. But I was not part of the delegation with Wonderstruck. I was production manager on that job. Yeah. But I uh, I just slithered my way onto the red carpet because yeah. you know it was all. It was, you know, my peeps from that <laughs> job. And it was one of these things that were, you know, the other producers kind of had to roll their eyes and like, all right, Frank, fucking come on. <laughs> so I did Ken just kind of almost as a tagger on, yeah. you know, not almost like I just tagged on to the can thing just yeah. to kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of what it's like. And same thing. Like I, I looked at how much pressure all everyone was under when they were there. I'm like, I wouldn't, it's nice, but it's not like, it's a weird scene, man. The mm. can film festival. 
Is that um, kind of all these festivals a, a similar? No, they're, uh, they, they all have their own flavor. Right. I mean, ironically, I missed the one I really wanted to be at, which is a, a very pure filmmakers festival, and it's honest, and it still has all of the um, uh, the positives that, that, that film festivals should have, and that's Telluride. But tell, I think that we, we were screening in Telluride like a day after Venice or something like that originally. And I was like, I, I can't be fucked to do this, you know, mm. this 24-hour trip. I was still, you know, you've seen me here. Like, I'm still getting my stuff into London. I was still getting settled here. I was like spread thin all over the place. So I missed it. And then I ended up going to Toronto. But they're all very, very different. Can... It's a lot of flash. It's like a really aggressive market there. So it was my first time there. So I tried to see everybody and my head was spinning. By the end of the day, I'm like, this is just, and it's just a lot of um, noise and wealth and, you know, rich people on the periphery that, that especially independent filmmakers believe are ever going to part with their money, which is, I don't buy it at all. I can usually sniff out a, a tagger on and a serious filmmaker from a mile away and it, it's it's that over there and I find yeah. there's a lot of look I, I can't speak to how many deals are actually cut and can but I can't imagine that it's nearly as much as the sort of the flash what's what's, what's advertised yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then Venice is, is love it was pretty lovely I think uh, that had this sort of like glamour yeah yeah we went to Venice and that's got this the glamorous sort of um, angle but it's definitely more subdued um, and it's definitely more uh, respectful you know mm. to the to the to the project um, and then Toronto is <laughs> I'm gonna get crucified for this it's a <laughs> Toronto is is a market and it's you know probably the biggest now um, and you know they print money around that festival and stuff and it's a well-oiled machine and all that but you know it's in Toronto I'm from Montreal I much prefer if it was in Montreal <laughs> that's it I'll leave it at that I won't right. get in too much trouble for saying that yeah so I mean traveling I guess in close proximity to uh, Legend of Cinema I imagine you probably got a fair few anecdotes about his uh, previous travels in, at yeah. festivals and yeah he's <laughs> um, when I told him I was going to make the trip to Cannes with the other movie he he was very quick to say ah it's shit now <laughs> you know and he was just like you know back in the day he used to hang out with like Fellini and I was, it was me and, a, and Marty Scorsese and Federico Fellini I'm like get the fuck out of here <laughs> and um, without going into too many details indicting you know um, <laughs> their legend. lifestyle at the yeah. time it sounded like a lot more fun than when I you know enjoyed there yeah but it was fun I mean but, but for, here's here's where it's fun if you're there with a movie in competition and I was there with a movie in competition kind of basking in everyone else's glow um, the producers you know and Christine and Todd and uh, my producing partner Brian Bell um it's awesome, you know, like for those, <laughs> like walking up, walking up that, uh, you know, the red carpet stairs and like looking down on the croisette with everybody out there. It's just surreal. It's really cool. Um, beyond that, it's whatever. You know, he's probably right. Like the after parties are just, feels forced. 
Yeah, just glamorous uh, networking events. Yeah, and it's a lot of, um, yeah, it's just a lot of peripheral globbers on that, I don't know, types of people that are attracted to it for what I consider to be the wrong reasons. But I'm careful when I say that because they're us- it's usually where my paycheck ends up coming from. So I <laughs> try not to bite off the hand yeah. that feeds, but yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, old habits die hard. It's just the way I am. I just have a hard time with that <laughs> Probably side of it. To go back to what you were talking about. But, it, but the, it's, it's, such a, it's such a fucking gross display of conspicuous wealth. Right. That you can't help but be turned off by it. As an artist, there's no... But some people aren't. I mean, that's, they, just, they live for the day that they get on the plane to go to Ken and do their thing. And that's just... You know, hopefully, with my new little company here, I started in London. Hopefully, I can hire well and get the kinds of people I can send in my stead. To <laughs> you know, and then when it comes to closing, then I'll I'll deal with that. Yeah. That's anyway. That's my uh, that's my pipe dream. Well, I mean, so many people, I guess, would hang up a, an idea of success for a film on you know being in traveling with these kind of top line festivals. Uh, or winning whatever sort of awards, what for you would make First Reformed a successful film? To me, it already is. Um, you know, pre-release, we're running at a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes on the heels of the, how it played in, at the festivals. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty incredible. But the market's so difficult at the moment because of oversaturation. And you can have something that just blows people away, but moving it is a whole, you know, it's a whole other ball of wax. Now, it ended up in the hands of the absolute best possible company, A24. Um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see how it does and stuff. But, you know, um, for me, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a resonating success already. And I'm just hoping that we get enough eyeballs on it that, you know, people talk about it and it gets a little bit of a, uh, an old school cult, um, you know, uh, propulsion Mm. You know, but I, who knows? Who knows? There's just so much stuff. It's so easy to get kind of lost in the noise. Although this stands completely alone. It's its own thing. There's nothing to compare to it at all. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful homage to a type of cinema that we just don't get to see anymore. And I'm hoping that, and it's, it's almost, it's, it, it was a polar reversal from what I did with Aang on, on Billy Lynn. It's exactly the opposite. Desaturated, low-tech. We shot an academy, an, an academy ratio, which was a fight. Originally, we were going to shoot it in black and white. And the, uh, the foreign, foreign sales company that essentially served as the production company went ballistic because <laughs> apparently they hadn't gotten the, that page two of the script that had the director note that said shot in black and white and in you know, four three. Um, yeah, right. Uh, they ended up capitulating on the four three, which was a fight, but uh, not on the black and white. But in hindsight, it was the right decision. I think it's actually better this way. It's a very sort of sophisticated, desaturated palette that works really, really well with this. Mm. That I don't think we would have necessarily gotten in black and white, even if we'd gone really hard lit and noir with it. Um, it works better. I think it's. I think it's a complete success. In fact, uh, it's 
it's the film I'm definitely the most proud of. Not just because you know I'm credited as a producer on the film, but from an execution standpoint, if you look at the ratio of means at our disposal to content, to you know, I by far, it's the one I'm most proud of. Is there a uh, like a is there a release date for Australia? April. Oh, for Australia? Yeah. It's uh, a good question. Um, April domestic. So, what's how does that usually work? It's usually around the same time. Around the same time. So yeah. there you go. April. Yeah. Oh, April yeah. May. People can look out for it in uh, April or May. Um, yeah. I'm 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 curious to talk about your your uh, decision to move over to London from your kind of foothold in the New York film industry. Why did you Why did you make that choice? <sighs> So, um, it, it, for a while I'd become just disenfranchised with my life in the U.S. and in New York. Um, it was about like six, seven years in the making. So my, my ex-wife and I had started talking about leaving New York many years ago I mean relatively shortly after I'd moved there maybe five six years I started to see New York change uh, when I got there there still were enough there was still enough of New York that um, from the New York that I had imagined to make me really excited about being there but at the same time as I was trying to kind of hold on to that I could see it just dying yeah so all of that sort of cool, gritty, edgy New York City started to just go. And of course, it's not lost on me that this happened in London as well. It's just the only difference is I didn't see it decay here. Yeah. So I'm starting from scratch. And I'm sure in 15 years I'll be like, fucking London sucks now. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, that might happen. But And I just started to, and a lot of my artist friends started to have to move out. They couldn't afford the city anymore. And then it started to feel a little bit lonely. Like I was the only one left that, or one of the few people that were left that kind of somewhat thrived in the arts there. And um, I don't know. I just had a maybe midlife existential kind of thing. I said, I got to move. And keep in mind, I mean, I left Montreal in 98. I moved to Spain. Then I moved to, the st- moved to New York. Uh, I took every job on the road that I could just to be able to move around. So I have a propensity for itchy feet as it is yeah so that's just a personality thing I just like to experience I want to know that I experience the world uh, at its fullest if I if I'm lucky enough to be able to afford to do so and I can with you know dual citizenship you know Canada and the US it affords you some stuff you know being a white guy affords you all kinds of things and it's certainly not lost on me and I um, I'm I'm not one of these people that you know my priv- whose privilege is lost on him. I know, you but I want to make the complex. but I also want to make the most of it. I don't want it to go to waste. Um, so that kind of played into it. But when I met Sasha, um, it was funny. The first time we met, we both talked about like, well, this probably won't last because I'm planning a move to Europe, probably the UK. At the time, it was still Europe, um, <laughs> and she said, I mean, it's, "Well, it's me." Still she said, "Me too. I'm moving back." And so we both kind of smiled and was like, hmm, that's interesting. So, you know, there's the family relationship kind of component that came into it as well. But also because 
um, I just didn't really like a lot of the stuff that I was reading. Uh, I didn't like the way people reacted to the types of films I wanted to make, too. The things I had in development, options I'd taken out. Um, I just had no... I'd go to L.A. you know, on those like two or three times a year pilgrimages over there to kind of test the waters to see what was happening. And I just identified with almost nothing. Killer Films is one of the rare exceptions, you know. Yeah. And there's others, too. They're doing kind of interesting stuff. Killer is definitely their own brand and I'll always sort of put them on a pedestal for that and that's why I I'm happy to do the the harder projects with them because from a content perspective from a philosophy perspective their heart is definitely in the right place even though none of us make it very easy for ourselves um, but it just it just became kind of I wasn't feeling it anymore so I had two options either go go to Canada or you know change careers um, kind of walk away from studio, but then, but then what? I mean, indie film in New York, outside of Killer, there's really not a whole lot going on. But I knew that the types of types of things that were getting made in Europe were a little bit closer to my sensibilities, at least for the mo- most part. Of course, I'm romanticizing it because, I mean, the quality of content across the board has become has taken a little bit of a hit. Mm. Um, in this market because of the sort of mass Walmart overproduction and oversaturation of sort of media right now. I'm not going to get into it because I don't, again, don't want to make enemies. <laughs> but but uh, I just felt like there were more filmmakers here that might see things the way I did. Yeah. Or at least that's what I told myself. And, and there's, a, there's a tremendous amount going on in London and in Europe, I guess. Yeah. Not necessarily all good. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been watered down over over the years. It's but um but you know, it's different. And there's maybe it's just different. I always tell people the the grease is, the the green is the fuck, you know. The grass is never greener, but sometimes all you need is a different shade of green. Mm. You know? And that's what London was and I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, I love it here. Yeah. I mean, ironically, we're going to shoot this next one in Madrid. <laughs> uh, and it's set in Texas. So, right. I, I, you know. But um, Madrid for Texas. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's the nutshell. So you're working with another legend of the cinema on this next one. Do you kind of feel like you're finding a niche for yourself as a producer well, I don't know if I'm finding it or if it if somebody else is finding it for, for me. Right. Um, yeah, my my buddy Brian was like, maybe that's your thing. That's what everybody's gonna. You're gonna be like the auteur, the aging auteur director, producer now. I mean, I don't know about now. I mean, it's literally the sec, just like the second one in a row that's similar. But um, yeah, this is somebody else who I was told could be difficult could you know uh who i got along with very quickly Mm. um and who i adore and that's todd solons and um you know he's he's everything you'd expect him to be he lives up to the uh to the expectation he's a strange human being that's strange only by virtue of the fact that he's probably a lot smarter than most of us when it comes to his craft 
um, he's just unique. He walks his own line, and I, I, I gotta say, I, one of the most impressive things is as a screenwriter, I've never really experienced anything like my relationship with this script. Not necessarily the story. I mean the script, the quality of the of the efficiency of this thing, and I've been living with it very closely because Todd and this you know one of his many eccentricities, he doesn't write in final draft. He writes in in word, <laughs> and so I have to keep. I, I'm I, I'm the keeper of the screenplay. Right. So when he makes changes, he just sends them to me in Word. I have to reincorporate them, make all the changes as the you know with breakdown and the schedule and stuff. Yeah. But I keep the final draft version. So I'm sort of like you know, I'm ghosting the formatting of this thing. So I live with it much more closely than I would any other screenplay this early on in the process. And there's every single time I read it. Every single minor change he makes, I've never disagreed with one of them, and I laugh at the same things every time I read it. I've never experienced that before. So, yeah, it's awesome. You're asking me if it's great to work with legendary auteur filmmakers. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Mm, I don't think I did ask you that, actually. It's exactly what you asked me, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, that, that's what I asked you. So what, what do we do about this empty beer situation? Well, do we have to stop this conversation or do we have to walk to the bar with I the mean, mic? So if I, if I press pause on this recording and we get a beer and then I press unpause, it'll be like no time has passed at oh. all for the person who's listening to it. That's incredible. Should we try it? Yeah, let's try that. All right, cool. So you like magic? Full beer. Full beer. You got a full beer. I got a beer. And we've got some weird, what sounds like a Japanese version of uh, Can't Help Falling in Love With You playing. <clears throat> yeah. Um, what do they call that? That style in Japan? Um, what is the name of that? Like, it's, a, it's an actual style. No. Um, I'm not thinking of is Kabuki. It, is it Hakai or something? I'm not sure. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so what were we talking about? We were talking about, um, aside from the fact that we needed more beer. Yeah. And that we were talking about my move to, to London. We were I talking about your move to London. Then we were talking about the new, f- oh, how you were becoming the legends, uh, yeah. legend, the auteur legends producer. Uh, yeah, I was just talking about Todd. Well, I mean, look, it's it's early stages. Where you know we're in that in that zone where we've got a flashing green light, and all the pieces need to fall into place for us to be able to take it to the next next step what's the most challenging thing at this kind of stage s- stage of, of uh, pre-production uh, um, well it's 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 really make it's it's just getting the, f- the last bits of the financing together mm. you know it's I think it's getting harder and harder you know um, pre-sales people a little bit more gun shy um Again, you know, it's hard to compete with the big, big, um, you know, out churners of content at the moment, and so it's becoming more difficult. It's becoming more difficult for um, for sort of quirky auteur films to get out there. But interestingly enough, there's a there's still a lot of it being made, you know. Um, and the number of submissions to festivals now is just it's unfathomable 
it's hundreds and hundreds of films, features. Yeah. Um, so they're getting made, you know. And um, but that's the hardest part now is sort of doing that dance and getting all of the requisite parties to the table to have the right conversation about making the same film and all taking the plunge together. And this is a little bit different because it's um, it's an international co-production. Uh, that involves the United States, and that becomes that's a little bit of a trickier, uh, stranger animal because it, usually in in the U.S., you know, ninety eight percent of it is is single source financing for the most part, um, or ninety five percent. So, you know, it becomes a little bit more complex. So, yeah, the hardest part is really just kind of waiting for everybody to be reacting to what they need to come to the table to. Yeah. And on my end, it's just adjusting, adjusting expectation, making the you know requisite changes to uh, hit the targets I need to hit. But I'm you know I'm very excited about the prospect of working in Spain because they have a they have such a great history of you know, it's it's a filmmaking nation, and um, they have just incredible talent there as far as department heads, crew, and stuff like that. Um, they they love they love the craft, and they're enthusiastic about it, and they're very erudite when it comes to you know film history, and, and so I can't wait. I think it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a great project. What what you know we've touched on a few times the the oversaturation of the marketplace with content, with films, with whatever. I suppose, what advice would you give to people who were just starting out in creating their own content in writing and producing or directing work? Uh, well... How can we start... How can, From your point of view, how could we start to shift the trend? Well, I don't know that you can shift... It's not necessarily a shifting in the trend because I mean, you're going to be kind of the trend idea, is going to be there. You can't really control it. Yeah, you can't control the fact that you have a company that has to spend nine billion in content in 2018 mm. in order to make their balance sheet work. So the trend. This is a hard question, and I have to weigh my words carefully. I think the the only advice I would give is use it as a as a as an excuse to really hone your craft and to define your style and to define your message very carefully. I think especially now and it's always really been the case in big booms in Hollywood if you're chasing you're dead. You're just dead and you have to be a market maker. And you have to be willing to accept that if you if you become a market maker, you're you're going to be lucky if you just get by. If your rent is paid, if you know, but if you get to get by doing what you love, you're a huge success. If because you're uncompromising, somebody recognizes that and brings you to the bigger money, then you've you've hit pay dirt. But that should only come as a bonus it shouldn't be the the end-all be-all of why you're doing it because if you're comparing yourself to other people that are pocketing huge sums of money um, by you know cre- creating stuff 
that's already blueprinted for you that belongs in this existing narrative universe that you're just adding another chapter to. Don't be one of those people. Yeah. Because that machine needs to die. I, I, I think that we've reached peak superhero, peak Marvel, peak Disney, peak Star Wars, peak, you know, franchise. And we need a return to original content. Um, you know, we need to get away from remakes, reboots. And I think if I was going to give anybody advice, and this is very self-serving because this is what I want to see <laughs> from any, anybody starting out, I want to see new shit. And I want to I want to see things that speak to the times. I have this sort of romantic idea that the Trump era and Brexit is going to usher in this new punk rock reality, where maybe maybe there is a massive reset in the economy where people take it on the chin really hard, and it creates it's going to make for great art because you're not going to have the opportunity to continue to grow in any line of work you go into. I mean, it's unsustainable. Yeah. You know, and I think that it's reflected in, in media. I think that it's just, it's unsustainable. I don't, I don't know about you, but there's so much shit out there. Who's got time to watch all of this stuff? Mm. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't think that there's very much thought put into at least 80% of what people sign off on at the moment. And I think that there needs to be a massive purge at the executive level. All these people that hold billions of dollars in purse strings that have no business being storytellers. There needs to be a purge. I'm not saying that we don't need the people with the deep pockets, but I'm saying it's high time people look around them and see how did this person get this job? And that person and that person who works for them and that person and that person. Because clearly, there's some very poor decision-making happening. At least from a quality of content, from, from, from that perspective. Now, if that's truly what people need, you know, want, and we've reached the point where nobody is discerning enough anymore for it to matter, then I'm the odd one out, and I'll, uh, you know, I'll just go slowly into the night <laughs> over the next few years. <laughs> You know, with the rest of the dinosaurs that believe that, you know, quality content matters. And um, with and literary quality matters. Mm. And intelligent subject matter matters. And execution and the way a film looks matters. But, yeah, maybe that's just me and a few a handful of other people but, yeah. no, I don't think so but I think I think you raise an interesting point about Brexit and the Trump era being a kind of tipping point for you know our our generation or the kind of generations that we represent I was speaking with my uncle uh, who's you know pushing 60 and he's like I'm waiting for your generation to get really angry and I said to him, "What about what?" And he said, "Well, our generation has fucked your generation, yeah, like, completely, yeah. You know, like you can't, you guys can't buy houses, you guys can't, like, there's no job security anymore. Yeah, they've gamed it in such a way that debt economy is the only way. Mm. Um, and if you yank the plug on it, the severity of the collapse is such that 
no one in their right mind be prepared to accept that as a consequence. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, as long as as long as you know five companies in the U.S. own and run everything, um, I don't see a change. I yeah. mean, the responsibility of the shareholders that depend on that uh, is such that they hold they're holding it all together. You know, and there's nobody's gonna in their right mind there's enough systems of filters to, till you get to those strings that you you'd want to cut you know as a voting member of a society that you'll just it's not going to happen so I, I i think it's really about finding a way to kind of exist in that unfortunate paradigm right um and just be stubborn yeah to the point of stupidity if, if you need to i honestly I, I believe that if you're an artist just accept that you know you're you're, that's what you are, and um, you know. I mean, I, I fight. I fight to get a good deal on whatever I work on. You know, I I, I want to earn my keep like anyone else, and I want to do well like everyone else. But at the end of the day, it's it's ancillary. Mm. If it wasn't, I wouldn't be doing nearly as much work for free as I do in any given year. Yeah, it's it's kind of mind blowing that even at you know the level that you're working at, this you still need to be working on spec to get stuff happening. It's the only way. Yeah, and honestly, it's the only way that I would have it because it puts you in a group of people who who can look at themselves in the mirror every day and look in each other's the whites of each other's eyeballs every day. When you say, okay, you want to talk about integrity, I could talk about integrity. Um, without ever having to, you know, question its honesty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's coming from. Um, it's not an act, you know what I mean? Mm. So, but yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's not it's not easy to be stubborn and cynical and <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard. It's very hard. Yeah. Well... Frank, it's been uh, it's been great to catch up again over a couple of pints and do the first uh, coming up next pubcast. Uh, on the last uh, podcast, actually, we briefly touched on uh, your relationship life and how work sort of played into that. And I know that now you're engaged. Um, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, how I guess you know you guys having moved over here together. Um, do you feel as though? your work life and your relationship life continue to kind of marry in this kind of parallel way? I think so. I mean, for the most part. And, and, and I mean, lucky for Sasha or unlucky, I don't know. Depends on what day you ask her. I've been here all the time. Um, and I set up my office at home, so I'm there all the time. That sounds awful for her. but um, <laughs> So it's been good. You know, we'll see how it is if, I, you know everything goes to plan and I end up in Madrid for six months but the beauty about Europe is you can work internationally and it's just the easiest thing in the yeah, world like to, an hour and a half yep flight. to get around it's like taking the subway yeah <laughs> I mean it, or you driving know, on the freeway I mean, it's crazy yeah. you know and this, it's, it's just amazing you know I treat Berlin and Paris and Madrid and Barcelona and uh, as I would the Bronx when I lived in New York it's like it's about as much time in the subway as it takes me to get there. Mm. It's, uh, I don't think I could go back to anything. And, and I just, I just like 
I'm actually getting a kick out of the whole Brexit thing because it makes for really stimulating conversation <laughs> with everybody else from yeah. Europe right now. Yeah. Um, but anyway. That's a whole new pubcast, I think. Probably yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Next time one. for part three. Yeah. Uh, you know, I end every conversation with the what makes you silly question, but uh, I've been trying to think this whole way through how I can reframe it to be a second uh, version. So let's go with what makes you silly in London? Um, or maybe Europe? Well, that's a good question. I don't think... What makes me silly is that I haven't really made an effort to change anything about how I go about my everyday business, <laughs> which is... I, which I actually take to, I find it, that's to me respectful because I did that when I moved to New York. So that's actually an interesting kind of topic. So when I moved from Canada to, to Spain, it was, a, it was much less a culture shock going from Quebec to Catalonia than it was for me to move to New York City, which is a six hour drive away from where I was born. Um, and here I feel so at home that I guess I'd say what makes me silly is that I've almost four weeks or less into being here, I've just behaved as if I've been here forever. Um, I've got and I've gotten no flack for it. I think that that's exactly what all of my friends now here uh, like the most. There's not a lot of uh, I didn't find it to be an adaptation at all. Um, maybe that's what makes me silly. It's funny. I had a similar kind of experience when I moved over here. It was like it just felt so familiar and comfortable that it didn't feel like there needed to be this big kind of adjustment of anything. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I have there's there was no need for me to get acclimated. Um, it feels like I've been here for four years. Mm. You know, I've been here six months. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> maybe that's silly. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. Okay, bud. Thank you. <laughs>